Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. So let's look at the statistics. The United States is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Mass incarceration is a problem uniquely American. Why are we so prone to putting people behind bars? One theory is that it's modern day slavery. Prison labor is a real thing, and because of the 13th Amendment, there are many companies out there who benefit wildly from this highly distorted labor market. And it's not like we haven't heard this before. Hip hop artists have been telling us these stories for generations. Here's the song Reagan by Killer Mike. I've included about five stanzas here because I really want you to listen and understand his message. The end of the Reagan era. I'm like Lemma 12 old enough to understand the shit that changed forever. They declared a war on drugs, like a war on terror. But what it really did was let the police terrorize whoever. But mostly black boys, but they would call us niggas. And lay us on our belly while they fingers on their triggers. They boots was on our head, they dogs was on our crotches. And they would beat us up if we had diamonds on our watches. And they would take our drugs and monies as they pick our pockets. I guess that that's the privilege of policing for some profit. But thanks to Reagan, Prison turn to profits Cause free labor's the cornerstone of U.S. economics Cause slavery was abolished Unless you are imprisoned You think I ambush it and then read the 13th Amendment Involuntary servitude and slavery it prohibits That's why they giving drug offenders time and double digits Today we're speaking with author and activist Chris Wilson At age 17 he was sentenced to life in prison for murder his book, The Master Plan, is a primer for all Americans on the real truth behind mass incarceration. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings help us out a ton. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. All right, Chris, I want to talk to you about so many things. I want to talk to you about prison reform. I want to talk to you about your art. I want to talk to you about entrepreneurship. But first, I want to talk to you about your book. The Master Plan was, for me, a primer on the problems of our criminal justice system, mass incarceration, and in many ways, the foundation of racism in modern America. I would love to hear your story from the get-go. Like, it feels like the story is rooted in your childhood. Um, Yeah. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling our audience a little bit about what your childhood was like and how that might have led to these other events in the justice system precipitating from that. Absolutely. And, and thanks thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I want to f- start by saying that I dedicated my book to my mom. My mom was very instrumental in my life. And uh, the first part of my book, I write a lot about our relationship, which is really important to me and has shaped the person that I am today. Uh, but, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, during the crack epidemic where uh, there was a lot of gun violence back in the late 80s, early 90s. And 
you know, my mom, my mom was working as a paramedic and 12 hours a day was her shift. And so my grandmother would raise me uh, from uh, Monday through Friday and I would spend my weekends with my mom. You know, I, I was a mama's boy. I've made paintings about my relationship with my mom, about how close I was to her. She was everything to me. And she met this police officer who was like Denzel Washington in training day, real smooth cat, but just like a bad person. And he used to uh, physically and verbally abuse my mom. And one day he attacked us and tried to kill us. And he sexually assaulted my mom in front of me uh, and then, you know, tried to kill my mom. Uh, but we survived. And that that situation changed us, you know, changed me uh, for the rest of my life. And I, I just was never the same. And my mom was never able to go back to work. She fell into a deep depression. She was overprescribed pain pills, which she became addicted to. And when she couldn't renew her pain uh, pill subscription prescription, she uh, started using heroin. And so we spiraled downhill really fast. Police officer lost his job. But when he got out, he pled down to a third degree sex offense and assault, got out of uh, jail and started stalking us. And that's when uh, I, uh, my, I lost my cousin. My cousin was shot. Uh, my brother was shot. Uh, and then people came after me and I ended up taking a person's life and charged as an adult. I was 17 and I was sentenced to natural life in prison. And so when, when I went to at 17, yeah, 118 pounds. Yeah. So. I was sentenced to prison, and that was that was my rock bottom in my life. That's when uh, things changed dramatically. I mean, first off, we haven't even gotten to your stories of what, what life was like in prison, yeah. and you've already hit rock bottom before you even got into prison, which to me is, yeah. is very interesting. Um, and so when you tell this story in your book, The Master Plan, something that I don't think people understand is like, this in the grand scheme of things wasn't that long ago, right? right like right. what year what years are we talking about? Nineteen ninety six. Ninety six, man. Like yeah. dude. <laughs> like I remember ninety yeah. six. Like that's really yeah. not that long ago. And yeah. it we're talking Baltimore, correct? Well, uh, uh my charge happened in, in, in Maryland, Prince George's County, and so it was right just outside of D.C. I, I eventually moved to Baltimore when I was released from prison because oh, okay, excuse yeah, me. Washington, Washington became so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no Certification. Right? <laughs> that happens, man. Okay, so you find yourself in a situation where your relatives are, you know, your mother is being abused, your brother and cousin are shot, a natural father figure in your life is abusive, uh, attacking you, and you find yourself in a situation where you're pulling a trigger on another man's life. Yeah. Um, when you so one thing when we first, I, I want to just kind of ask you this question: when we talk about, you know compassionate release and prison reform, something that immediately I think we sort of caveat is we sort of like put nonviolent offenders in a separate bucket from violent right. offenders. Right. And I'm curious at the onset, your thoughts on that, because yeah. on one end, it makes logical sense from those on the outside. It's like, yeah, you know, doing drugs is only doing harm to yourself, you know, theoretically, like, why don't we have a little bit more leeway? But, oh my gosh, you actually pulled the trigger on somebody like, oh my yeah. gosh, that's something. But are these two characters 
in our modern criminal justice system really that far apart? So this is this is why I felt it was really important to tell my story and why I wanted to write a book, because I wanted to be able to explain to the world how someone like me ends up in the prison system. And, and my story isn't unique. A lot of people end up in prison uh, with similar backgrounds. And so what, what I what, what I would describe is I grew up in a community that was over policed, you know, infested with drugs, a lot of gun violence, and our culture, you know, was was different. It was all about survival, and you know, I, I didn't believe in 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 guns. I never wanted to hurt anyone growing up. That wasn't how I was raised, but I seen a lot of that stuff happen around me. And when I was attacked, and my mom was attacked. I write about like how my mom was treated when I was trying to get hope for her, how the system treated us just because of like who we were. And it changed me. And these people were police officers and who else was going to protect us? And so my siblings, myself included, we started carrying guns for protection. And I write about times where like stuff was happening to me. I had a gun. I just, I was not designed or initially, I wasn't built to, to, to use a gun or hurt someone. I never wanted to do it, but I, I wanted to have it and, and for people to like not to mess with me. So it was for protection. And so even the night when I caught my charge and I saw these men following me, I had my gun on me. I know I was wrong. I wasn't supposed to have it. And I said, well, I'm going to go somewhere where there's a lot of people. It was a gas station. So there was a lot of people out there, people pumping gas. It was a store, people coming and going. There were pay phones back then. People had the pay phones. I said, they, brought, they won't try anything here. Uh, and they did. And they said, we've been watching you. We've been watching your house. We're, we're going to finish your family off. And one of the guys tried to jump on me, and I just panicked. And I pulled my gun, and I fired some shots, and I ran in a different direction. And I found out a few weeks later that I had took a person's life. And I didn't even believe it because they ran off. And I said, well, I don't think I hit anybody. But, but I did. I hit one of the people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something that I regret. And I was I was charged uh, with first degree murder and, and sentenced to natural life in prison as a juvenile. Wow. As yeah. a juvenile, I mean, to me, like it's when, especially in, a, in in an election year, when we talk tough on crime, it yeah, it sounds so like Texas justice. We're gonna yeah. throw the bad guys in prison, but yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, looking at your face, I mean. You know, just seeing you in front of me and thinking to myself, you were 17. You were a 17. kid. 118 you know, pounds, no mustache on my face. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just it, it's uh, OK. So you go to prison and I got to admit, when we think about prison, I think you surprised me in a lot of ways in how industrious you were. Yeah. You got a lot done. Yes. And that seemed to be the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why you were able to take so initiative, so much initiative in some of the projects you undertook? Yes. So it took a while. So about two years into my incarceration, I spent the first two years smoking weed and just I was lost. I was depressed because of my, my prison sentence. But I had met a person uh, who eventually became my mentor who... He, you know, he dropped some jewels on me and he started talking to me about the power of knowledge. And he says, we had everything taken away from us. He also was serving a life sentence. He was about a year older than me. And he says, we had everything taken away from us, but no one can take away knowledge that we put in our minds. And this is how I'll become free. 
this is how I'll start my company one day, buy my dream car. He had it all figured out. And I, I, I thought about what he said to me and I looked around about I looked around at everyone else and what they were doing. It was people getting tattoos and people doing push-ups and people smoking weed and arguing over the phone. And I said, Well, I gotta think about how I wanna live the rest of my life and, and what do I wanna do with my life. And so I try to envision in my book I write about, you know, thinking about the end game. What are people going to say about me when I'm gone? Or who would I be, let's say, at age 40? And I start to envision that. And then I started writing stuff down and working backwards. If I wanted to become this uh, successful entrepreneur, I wanted to learn languages, I wanted to be able to travel the world, I wanted to buy my dream car. What are the things that I need to start doing tomorrow, today, in order to get myself closer to those goals? And so I wrote it up and I shared it with my judge, my grandmother, and then I taped the copy on the wall of my cell. And that became my religion. It was like I was going to prove to myself and to the world that my life was redeemable. And I just started studying and going to therapy. Yeah, man. But I got to admit, it, 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 you are also an anomaly, it sounded like. Yeah. Right? Like mo- that doesn't sound like what most of the folks in, in your prison were doing. You may, Can you talk to them a little bit about what the culture you saw yeah. was and what maybe a nor, uh, an average prisoner's Absolutely. day-to-day is like? <laughs> I, I think I may have referenced this uh, in the book, but it was like, like Fight Club. I mean, it was very, very violent. Everything that were on the streets were in the prisons, except guns. There were no guns there that I know of, but all the drugs, correctional officers bringing the drugs in, cell phones, like everything was happening in there. And it was very complicated for me because, you know, I wanted to, I had to figure out how can I structure my life where I stay out of trouble. No one bothers me. I don't have to join a gang or, or you know, uh, pledge a religion. And how do I make it through this? And so I actually grew up playing chess competitively. And so I started looking at my environment at, at the chessboard. It's like every move that I make will have consequences. And so I started thinking three or four moves ahead about things that I wanted to do, people that I surrounded myself with. And I was lucky to make it through my prison sentence without a single infraction and also having the blessings of even like, you know, gang leaders and all kinds of people in prison was like, we, we like that dude, man. And we're going to look out for him. He got life, but we think he's going to get out. And they would tell me all the time, you got to do good, and we're going to live through you. And these were some of these people were, were bad people, dealing drugs, hurting people in the prison. And they just like, well, we see something in you, and you're going to get out, and you're going to do something good. And there was many, many times, different years, where I lost faith. And was like, it's eight years in. I don't have a court date, and I'm looking around at people who've been in here for 40, over 40 years. And so it was, yeah. it was tough for me. I mean, and... You know, a couple things that stood out to me from your book were like the the sort of the the the, the Rubik's cube of events that have to be twisted in the perfect shape for someone like Chris Wilson to just get a court date and get the right judge there to have sympathy on your case, to understand your situation, to see potential, and then of course the obstacles you faced in your halfway house. Yes. Uh, were just mind blowing. It's just like this guy cannot get a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so before we go into the details, there, one thing that I wanted to make sure the listeners understood, more so that I've read a lot on prison reform. Right. Yeah. It's my my. I think it's it's 
I am humiliated that this is a problem that our country faces. Yeah. The land of the free is the home of the incarcerated. Um, the, I think you, more than any author, talked about the gravity and the weight of meaning behind Visitation Day. Yes. Right? Like what it means to a prisoner when someone comes to meet them, when someone gives them a phone call. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about how, how meaningful that was and what, what that meant in your heart? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, often, I often describe my experience of going to prison as being teleported to another planet. There's different rules there. And I had to adjust to, to this new environment. And any kind of contact with the outside world, especially visitations, even a letter meant everything to all of us. And it's one of the things I had to grapple with with creating my master plan when I was in prison is I had to give up that expectation that people would come see me. Uh, people, my family had stopped accepting my calls because the phone calls were so expensive. Like the, the average uh, incarcerated person makes about $25 in the prison that I was in and a 30-minute phone call home is $10. So you had to make a decision of like coffee, hy uh, hygiene products, and, and maybe some food. And so I couldn't call home anymore. And so the visits meant everything. And it was, it was your connection to, to the real world, to the free world. And it, and it kept people grounded, but I wasn't getting, I went years and years without getting visits, but they are incredibly important. I, I eventually became a photographer that worked in the visiting room so I would help capture those moments with people, uh, with their loved ones to come see them. But it was something that was very, very, it's very, it was very important to me, but it was also very painful when I went six years without seeing my family members because, you know, they just didn't come see me. Yeah. And in fact, it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you even uh, earned sort of an honorary family title with your cellmates family, yes. right? They were treating you like a second son yeah. or, or another son in yeah. the family. I mean, how magical was that? Yeah, it was, it was really special for me. I, I remember just, just them sending me money orders and I had a book budget because uh, I, I used to call myself the number one book crusher. I, I still read a book a week, but uh, they would just say, well, what books does you, do you want to read? We'll send them to you and then we'll read them. And the next time we come visit you, we'll talk about them. And I just couldn't believe it. I said, well, you know, what do these people want in return? Like, why are they doing this? And I said, you know, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And they became family to me and, you know, they still are. I mean, Chris, you know what it's, what's so amazing to me is like, you're talking about, you're in a situation of like borderline hopelessness. And, you know, you have life in prison. The odds of getting out are so slim. And this family is seeing so much potential in you. They they take you in as one of their own. They're sending you money. They're sending you books. They want you to, to find that spirit and fi keep that fire alive, right. even though that fire is in a cage. Right. Uh, bl bless their hearts, yeah. man. I, I, I loved reading about that. Yeah. Um, you know, before we move on to post-prison life, because, I mean, look, the the – I think we can all wrap our head. We, we can all wrap our heads around around what you've described in prison. But one of the most interesting characters that I think ha carries a lot of significance and is almost a metaphor is the Bama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell the audience what is a Bama? Yeah. And what does a Bama <laughs> do to the culture of a prison? Yes. So it's a it's a it's a a word 
I'm not sure where it originated, but it was a word that we use in DC. And the, 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 the person is just someone that's just loud, obnoxious, somewhat like lost. And, and in prison, prison is actually very structured and there's rules, there's hierarchies, all these things. And you'll have like this loud Bama just come in, like people trying to read a newspaper, people trying to talk to their family. And this person is just rapping rap songs to the top of their lungs. They're kicking over the trash can, cussing out the correctional officers, just mad at the world and just out of control. And, you know, this person, this type of person will perpetuate like the stereotypes that correctional officers and, and like society would have against us. And like when this person will behave like these people, like it was, it was a lot of them, when they would behave like this, we got treated a certain kind of way. And, you know, it was it was frustrating for me because like these type of people didn't represent who who we were uh, and our untapped potential. And so it hurt us. And so I was always frustrated when some loud Bama would be moved to my housing unit. And he was just like, I'm going to get me I'm going to sneak in a cell phone. I'm going to smoke weed. I'm not even going to blow it out the window. I'm going to blow it on the tear. I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to wear my pants down to my knees. And it's just like, dude, you like really making us look bad. You need to get your act together. And it's, it's just hard to even reason with these type of people. And, you know, they, they, you know they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, stereotype is the operative word yeah. here, right? It, it, it created a almost a like it's that one fringe prisoner yes. could set the tone for not only the culture of the rest of the inmates but all but the correctional officers and the way they're going to treat the the whole crew absolutely I mean, yeah it what an unfortunate situation and you know what i really i at the end of the day when i analyzed the situation i actually felt sorry for the bama character yeah. because the mental health breakdown the loss of hope that could you know, cause someone to act out in that manner. Yeah. That's devastating. T- totally. Right? And I, I watched a lot of people, a lot of these, <laughs> these Bamas get, get hurt. Um, I, I watched some of them uh, be killed, but I also seen some of them like have breakthroughs and kind of just find that switch and get their high school diploma and just like make that switch. And so, um, yeah, I could talk a little bit more about that later, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very strange. It was a strange um, experience in prison to be able to live around people like that. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, let's talk about how you got out. Yeah. So towards the it. it so what I understood is that it's my I, I couldn't understand. Was this a pro bono lawyer? Yeah. That took time. Out of their, they're taking time out of their billable hour rate from their law firm, and going out and finding candidates for a compassionate release. Yeah. And what are the odds that your file gets picked up by this attorney? How does that happen? It do, it, so it doesn't happen, uh, almost, uh, almost never. And I had a paid attorney initially, but he was diagnosed. He was fighting for his life. He, life. He had cancer. Uh, which he eventually overcame, but uh, there was a, a a new attorney to the office, and he read my case and was like, "I want to go visit this dude." And he came to visit me just to see how I was doing because my lawyer was sick, and he was about the same. I guess he was the same age as me. Yeah, Mr. Shostak was the same age as me, and so we just started. We built a like relationship, and when he would come see me, 
I would, I would be talking to him about like things that I learned. I would say like, I'm up to 800 characters in Mandarin and I just completed like this Italian course and I just done this. So I built this. So I read this book and he was like, dude, like you so like optimistic. And he, he, he took a liking to me and he went back to the office and he says, I, you know, I really don't think this guy should be in there. I, I like him and I want to take on the case. And this was, I mean, he came to visit me for years just to check on me. And I remember one day he came to see me. He was super excited. And he says, I got great news. I think I had been in about seven years. And he says, I got great news. I said, what's up? He says, I, I think I got an opportunity to get you a, a sentence reduction uh, and get you reduced down to 30 years. And I said, I can't do 30 years. He says, you got life. That's a deal. I said, if I get, if I accept 30 years, any parole board, anyone else is going to say, you got your break. You got to, you got to do 30 years in prison. I said, I'll be old. I got stuff I want to do. And he says, well, what do you want? I said, I'm 20 years. And he says, in order for you to get 20, Chris, you got to cure cancer. And I got up. I said, well, I got a lot of work to do. I'll see you next time you come, you come visit me. Um, and we joke about that now, and it was probably stupid that I did that, but I, I had I had this faith that I would be free relatively like soon. I spent a long time in prison, but I, I felt like I would be free at some point, and I wanted to be prepared for that moment when I was free. I mean, somebody tells me, Rajiv, you got 30 <laughs> years guaranteed versus life. I got to tell yeah. you, man, I'm not sure if I think... <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure if I tell him, hey, I'm going to go work on curing yeah. cancer. Oh, my goodness, man. And like, OK, so then you finally, by the grace of God, get a court yes. date. And it happens to be with an attorney, excuse me, with a judge uh, that has a more compassionate uh, view towards prison reform and the problems of mass incarceration. Right. So you get a judge. So you, you kind of, you have to get a couple things uh, in the domino yes. effect. First and foremost, you got to have an attorney uh, or someone to advocate yes. for you that is, you know, it, it, it by no means is systemic, right? You basically, by the grace of God, landed on this guy's file. He comes, he meets you, he likes right. you asked to invest his own time and political capital to go say, hey, I want to take on this guy's case. Uh, okay, so great. You've charmed the socks off of uh, your attorney. Fantastic. Then the attorney has to go and, uh, you know, put together some semblance of a deal for yeah. you uh, and then build a packet. And then we also have to be able to get the judge on your court date who is sympathetic to not just you and your personal case, but just more aware of the injustices of the criminal yes. justice system and say, okay, I'm willing to take a bet that Chris Wilson, having committed a, you know, a crime, but having shown XYZ improvements over, you know, many years in prison is probably worth a shot on the outside right. world. Literally a miracle. Yeah. I mean, literally takes a miracle, literally a yeah. miracle. Right. And there are hundreds of thousands of people for a variety of, uh, crimes that were committed at the ages of 17, sometimes 16 trialed as an yeah. adult that are still in prison serving outrageous sentences today, locked away from their society. Let me ask you this, Chris. So we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how 
negative the experience of prison can be. We've talked a little bit about the positives of, of what prison can be in the sense of like you, you channeled a lot of those resources to make you a better person. But did prison, I guess what I'm, what is the, the question I'm trying to ask is it was, is it, is prison really the best punishment, right? Does it help society? Is society, is the community you hurt with your crime any better off because you did 20 years in prison? Well, I'm going to try to answer that complicated question the best I can. I, I, I don't, I, I will not say that I had to go to prison in order for me to become the person that I am, but I have become the person I am that I, because I went to prison. I, I, I can't credit the prison system for uh, my transformation. However, uh, the, the institution that I was in, they did have some specialized programs. I, I do have to give them credit for the extensive uh, therapeutic programs that were inside of the prison. You know, one of the things I put on my master plan was I, I wanted to embrace therapy and, and get a understand how I ended up here. I had a lot. I had been through a lot of stuff at the time. I didn't know about PTSD and and trauma and all the stuff that I, I've been through as a young person. I had to unpack all that stuff, and therapy provided the space for me to do that. I, you know, as much as I dislike the the prison system, I have to credit the system for providing those services for me for me to change. Uh, the second is I had significant educational opportunities. No one really motivated us to go to school or do these things, but they existed. And I knew that I was reasonably intelligent and book smart, and I love to read books. So I, I chose to embrace education as a way to prove uh, that, that I was uh, rehabilitated at a certain point. Uh, but the other, the other challenges are the way prisons are structured. It's about punishment. It's punitive, and it's... They want to make you pay in, in, in every way that they can. And so although I was embracing the education and therapy uh, pursuits, there was always this constant pressure of punishment, punishment, lockdowns, and you can't do this and you can't do that. And so I kind of I rebelled against that system and I wanted to prove them wrong. And then there were uh, mentors, which were um, critical in my life, older people uh, who saw potential in me, even when I didn't see it in myself, like, like Steven and Steven's family who would come visit me. There were years where I was just like, I've been working so hard and it's all people having all this fun in prison and, and people smuggling in alcohol and phones and they just doing their thing and living life. And I'm just locked in, sweating, heat wave, uh, studying for math and, and trying to uh, graduate from college. And there were people who would say, you got to put this work in and you're just being prepared for when you become free. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to ever be free. I mean, I, I want to believe it. It was times when I had these, these doubts. And then my crew would pick me back up and get me back in a fight. And some of these people were people who unfortunately probably are never coming home, who some were not even good people. They were hurting other people and, and dealing drugs in the prison, but they would look out for me. And they would say, well, I got to look out for you because you're going to get out and we're going to live through you. So you're going to finish the work. Yeah. Unbelievable, man. Let's talk about this halfway house that you went to. This is the most frustrating thing about not just the mass incarceration system, but it's like if, if the miracle comes to fruition and you're able to get a compassionate release, if even 
all these bills on the floor. Like I'm really passionate about the Equal right. Act. Uh, you know, bringing down the disparity of crack and powder cocaine one to one. Right now, it's at eighteen to one. Let's say all the miracles come together. You're able to get released out of prison uh, with the right attorney, the right judge. Boom. Now you have to go into a halfway house and one little screw up. Like one, you show up late to a check-in meeting. You, you don't take a phone call the right way. You, you rub someone the wrong way. And you could be sent back to yep. prison. I mean, talk to us about this reintegration process, because I'm not sure people understand how delicate this is. It's not like once the judge bangs the gavel, it's like, sweet, I'm a free man, I'm going to go to Vegas yeah. or something. It's like, you got to work for it. Talk to us about that process. You know, <laughs> I'm laughing about it now, but it's not funny. This is this was the worst, worst moment of my life, uh, my experience there, because you think, I mean, you, I, I worked my ass off to get to the halfway house, no infractions. I got enrolled in the college, straight A student, doing everything I'm supposed to do. And you would expect your caseworker, licensed uh, social worker, to be to be your champion. It's like you, you know, I, I want to see you be successful. The exact opposite. And not just like my caseworkers, the officers. I mean, I I mean the stuff that they did to me, I didn't put anything in my book that I couldn't cooperate. But but I left out a lot of stuff that they were doing. They were urinating in my food. They were uh, in middle of the night, uh, you know, shakedowns and come and strip you naked and have you stand. It's like you got you got midterms coming up in like a few hours. And my caseworker would tell me, she I had to report like bring my 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 grades and my report card stuff to her. How are you getting straight A's in accounting? I didn't get straight A's when I was in college and. I'm going to cut your school time from six hours to four. And I said, well, well how am I going to do my work? And they would say, exactly. And it's like, you don't belong out here. And you will be lucky if you were to get a job at a gas station. You would be lucky. I mean, they were just saying all kinds of things to crush my spirit. And for me, it kind of became a game of like, all right, I know that you want to do everything you can to stop me. You want to deny me everything. I will work hard, do all my, my, my chores around the facility and hopefully get a four hour pass to go out. They would just take my pass from me. And I'd just say, okay, I'll just go read some books. And they were doing everything they could to destroy me. And what, what really uh, eventually sent me back is when my mom uh, committed suicide and the things that they said to me and how they started treating me. Uh, and then they decided to send me back. And so that was the, that was the darkest moment in my life. And they put me in solitary confinement after that, and I literally didn't do anything. Um, it is, it just, it just, it signifies how difficult the reentry process is in America. And this is why I wrote about like any little infraction, you go back into prison because they, the, the prison slavery hasn't like died. It just metamorphosized itself into what it is now, and it's a business. And it's now, how do we keep these beds filled? So, oh, you're late. You're ten minutes late to see your uh, probation officer. We're gonna violate you. We'll at least send you back for, for 90 days or, or even more. Or, or maybe like you we, we reinstate your old sentence. And this is how it's set up. And taxpayers pay for this. And this doesn't make people better. This doesn't protect the public. It actually endangers the public. Mm -hmm. Let's 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 paint a little bit more yeah. detail here. What I think maybe a lot of people aren't aware is the when when we say slavery. Yeah is just alive and well in the prison system, what we're talking about is prison yes. labor. 
there are many companies, many of them defense contractors. In fact, one of my uh, dear friends uh, who was in prison for, I believe, conspiracy to uh, to sell crack cocaine, uh, he was doing, I think, like a sentence of about 10 years. And uh, he would go and make patches for the armed yeah. forces. And actually, it was the patches that I wore in Afghanistan. And I said, hey, man, how much did you get paid for making those patches? He said basically like a, a, like a like two dollars for a pack of thirty or something like that. Chris, that one patch cost me like seven dollars. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? And I'm thinking to myself, the margins these companies are making off of this prison labor, it's basically yeah. slavery. It's basically free yeah. labor. And if you don't think that's happening in 2022 in the united states you are out of your freaking yeah. mind yeah 13th amendment um which you know which we should should amend um kind of you know reads as it justifies like indentured servitude to people like convicted of felonies like it doesn't make any sense um but yeah like that that's that's something that's going it's still going on to this day and that's that's how it's set up to be yeah um it's uh, it's absolutely infuriating, man. It's 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 embarrassing, and and I guess when I I gotta ask you though, at the same time when we talk about the ability for these prisoners to earn a wage, it is money. It yeah. is money. So you gonna it's do like it? It's, yeah. It gets you, you by, yeah. right? Like, what are we supposed to do instead of letting them work these jobs where they are getting a, a degree of training? Right. They are getting a degree of skills. They're earning a little bit of cash to spend at the commissary. I actually uh, met someone who was able to pay for some college education with uh, in the prison with the with these funds, these proceeds from uh, working for a contractor. It's like, yeah, we could take all that away. But then are we not also hurting the prisoners in the short term, even though we're trying to solve a systemic right. problem? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's it's complicated, and you got to think about in a in a tough space. What is the what is the best? I don't know. Return for for time committed. You know, you got you got to think about those things. And when I was at when I went to college, there were people who were, were advocating against college, complaining like, "What you know, my 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 daughter or son, you know, took out a loan and is in debt, and like, how do you get?" like a free education. And eventually they took our college program. But, you know, what I would argue uh, for people who protested like therapy or like uh, educational opportunities was that we, we're paying for this incarceration, taxpayer citizens, we're paying for this already. And what do you want someone to do while, while they're in there in this correctional facility? Like we want to correct some things. So it's like if this person most likely was dealt a bad hand, went to a bad school, went through some traumatic experiences or whatever, and oh, big surprise, uh, they end up in prison. So, okay, so while they're in there, let's let's get them polished up. Let's get them educated. Let's get like some, some job skills. And so they get out and they stay out. And that actually is a better investment of taxpayers' dollars. And that money that we save when that person does not reoffend, and there's a lot of science behind, even a little bit of education reduces the recidivism rate. That's a better return. That money that we save, we can put it into our schools. But but the problem is people people just look at it as you know this is all about punishment and they're not really seeing the big picture. 
Right. Yeah. It's it's like that we're not actually we may call it a department of corrections, but really what we're doing is it's a it's a it's just vin, it's a department of vin, yeah. Like want to hurt you. Yeah. I, I can't even describe you. the word. Yeah. It's anger. It's like we yeah. just want to punish you. Um, it's it almost feels like an extension of what I am noticing as our national masculine insecurity yes. complex. You know, it's like this idea that we all need to drive Dodge Ram <laughs> 3500 trucks to our job yeah. at the dentist. Uh, we all need to have yeah. big guns. We all need to, we all need good to be America. macho. Uh, good old America, right? But the reality is, is that we do so much harm. I mean, you're a human being with a soul. And it's not like you had a gun or was in a, even in a, I've never, like, I was in the army I had, I was around guns for a long time, but when I hear about, you know, your upbringing at that age, like, despite as violent as my military experiences was, I had nothing like what yeah. you went through. You know what I mean? And I had training in firearms. I had mentors. I was, you know, educated and people like taught me like, and I was with a team of other yeah. people with weapons and we could communicate with each other. Like what you had was downright chaotic and that shooting was a symptom of your environment and your upbringing and for us to sort of just say yeah you know what we're just gonna keep punching yeah (laughs) yeah it seems so it's the the main reason why again i wanted to share my story and, and speak to a few things of like how someone like me ends up but also a lot of people unfortunately many women find themselves in situations like I am, you know, a uh, uh, long sentence, made a mistake, dealt a bad hand in life. And then what do they do now? And so I, I wanted to yeah. also, you know, when I wrote up my master plan, I talked about things that I wanted to do that I hadn't done yet. And so it was pressure for me. Once I, uh, you know, started my reentry process, it's like, all right, well, I work really hard and I'm out here now. And what am I going to do? How am I going to deliver? How am I going to execute this plan? And then that that was a like a different chapter, which was also very difficult. You know, I had attempts against my life being shot at, had to deal with my my uh, caseworker uh, and then more and more uh, challenges. And I still face challenges. But, you know, I uh, have equipped myself um, with a few skill sets and surrounded myself with, with amazing people. So I have a system now where I feel like. I can continue to be successful because uh, I got people in my corner. Yeah. You started companies. You're yeah. an entrepreneur now. And what's really exciting, and I think what sings in my heart more than anything, is that you have become yes. an artist. <laughs> uh, and I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, and how does one learn the space of art. How did this emerge as a practice of yours? I, I used to say that this came out of nowhere. It was sort of serendipitous that I became an artist and until like some of my old teachers from school like reached out to me through LinkedIn and says, nah, nah, you were, you were drawing and winning art competitions in school. So like you was doing it back then. And then when I went to prison, my cell buddy, Steven, was an artist. And we did murals. I just mixed the paint. And I would study foreign languages while he made the paint. But now he's like, you know, I'm, I'm selling all these paintings all around the world. And he's like, I need 
or for all your sales because you watched me. You copied my style while I was painting like the whole time. He's joking, but but I laugh about it. But it's something now that I didn't plan, but but I'm deeply in love with every everything about art. Unbelievable, man. I mean, you've had shows up yeah. in New York City and I mean, you're just crushing the art game. So author, artist, entrepreneur. Chris, what I love about your story, man, is anytime I have a bad day, I think to myself, I think about, you know what I actually think about? I think about guys like you. I think about every one of the inmates that I've met over my time with fam, with uh, my, my charity, charity work with Families Against Mandatory Minimums. But I tell you, you know what yeah. I really think about is like those families that are keeping the spirits right. alive of those yeah. who are still in, yes. you know, the moms, the dads, the sisters, the brothers that are calling, sending stuff. I mean, the amount of hope and love that you got to have in your heart is to, to fight these systemic forces. Is, yeah. Is so I, yeah. Deep. I, I second so that. I, I've, I've seen a lot of families working in the visiting room as a photographer. A lot of families visit people, uh, and bring their children uh, to the to the facilities to see them. I mean, they they're they're the real champions, and it's one of those things. It's unfortunate, but I speak about this a lot. Is that when someone a loved one goes to prison, like the whole family goes to prison in a sense. Um, you know, like the the people who visit their loved ones sometimes weekly or, or monthly and, and travel and often have to wait for hours uh, to see their loved ones. Uh, are like the real champions. I, you know, I was so, so happy to have uh, my my so buddy Stephen, like his family, come visit me. It was everything to me, uh, and they reminded me that I had work to do when I got out. They helped me, uh, you know, when my confidence was down, and emphasized the importance of education. And so, that, I mean, it's something that's critical to a lot of people uh, in prison, and which is why it's so crazy that. The phone calls are so expensive in a lot of these prisons across the country. They make it so difficult for people to stay connected with their family. And the punishment is them being away from their family, but at least they could they can talk to them and their family members can give them some hope and some encouragement to embrace programming, to get out and, and do something good. I just, you know, it just saddens me to, to see people cut off from the world. I, I went a long time without being connected to the outside world. And, but I had people uh, inside of the prison who, who encouraged me, but a lot yeah. of people don't. They just, they're just in there and they're lost. Yeah. And go figure, right? Like, Hey, this person grew up in a, you know, in a weak community, in a weak family environment and he goes to prison. Well, guess what? You put him in prison for a life. Guess what? You just, You've, you've just perpetuated the problem because, oh, by the way, we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, you had a son that while yes. you were in prison that was growing up fatherless this whole time. And it's just yeah. like – And foster homes, everything. Exactly. And mess. so it's just like, well, what is this son going to be doing without a father figure that can really mentor him and, and coach him? And, and I'm not saying that you were probably ready to be a father right at like, you know, the time of going maybe – you know, you committed a crime, you had to pay a little bit, whatever. But like, you know, life in prison, life, that that's life without a father, life without, you know, that right. it just seems so tragically harsh when we think about, the, yeah. you know, the disease that that everyone in this circumstance is suffering from. Right. And it's it's so interesting me, totally. to me, this this dichotomy, particularly with drugs, 
uh, when we start when that the convenience with which we start switching out a crime for a health problem, right? And yes. <laughs> I'm not one to miss the fact that when it's a person of a minority descent, it tends to be called a crime. Yeah, it's a crime. And when it's, <laughs> yep. you know, the meth or heroin epidemic in the Midwest, oh, well, that addiction's a disease, y'all. That's that's something we got to talk yes. about. But yeah. I, I, I digress, so man, because, yeah. you know, the reality is that mass yeah. incarceration affects, it is a cross-section of America. I mean, there are so many yeah. white uh, prisoners that are in there unjustly as well, um, you totally, know, for a variety totally. of crimes. It is not just a racial issue. It's, it's across the entire country. Yeah, uh, totally. Chris, I want to talk to you about, you know, some of your charitable work, man, and some of your, the things that you're doing to, to draw attention to prison reform. Uh, for our listeners here, let's say that they get fired up about this issue. They want to learn more. They want to get involved. What are some of the things that you would direct them to do? So I would I would first direct anyone who was interested in learning more or even supporting to, to my foundation, uh, the chriswilsonfoundation.com. Uh, I have a crew of people. Uh, we have turned my book, The Master Plan, into a facilitated program. Uh, we are in 22 states and a few hundred uh, jails and prisons. And we are rolling out a few uh, additional revamped programs, essentially a masterclass style of walking people through uh, different steps of their lives and helping them develop uh, or just understand uh, self-agency and and finding that switch within themselves. Like all of us have potential. We just kind of help you find that switch and help you think about it differently and then help you write your own master plan and Hopefully, like during your reentry process, you join this alumni uh, and, you know, and we support you in your next steps of your life, whether you want to start a business, you want to get a job and earn a livable wage. And so that's the work that I'm most proud of. Uh, and I've, I've been uh, working on this for the past couple of years and I, I'm excited about it. I think this will be uh, my legacy. I, I do this during the day and I make art doing it. I love it, man. That's beautiful. I do master plan (laughs) today and make art at night. Well, you know, I tell you, Chris, you know, I grew up very fortunate, right? I had parents that really loved me, cared for me. Um, You know, we didn't grow up in like a super, let's say, uh, I didn't grow up in a community with a lot of opportunity, but I I got nothing serious to complain about. Like I was healthy, happy, you know very very safe um and every one of my teachers that like saw me and you know they would they would ask you like yo i got asked the question what do you want to be when you grow up okay where do you want to have you thought about college what kind of college you want to go to like even just being asked the question to have the like kind of the architecture of that master plan these are things right that were very they, they seem very banal to me today right like i guess what i'm trying to address here is that many of our listens when they hear master plan building a plan for what you want to be and how to get there that seems pretty obvious that seems pretty easy to get to it's, it's not, not yeah, right it's not we take for <laughs> granted those moments as children and as young adults when someone older than us added a little bit of structure into how we saw the world right 
Yes. Man, yes. and yes. Yeah, that's what you're doing for prisoners today who didn't have that when they were getting yeah. getting raised. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I want people to think about, especially people who listen to this. You don't have to be impacted by the criminal justice system to create your own master plan. I mean, you could be working at a cashier as a cashier in Walmart and you want to start your own business and do bird watching in Brazil during the summers or whatever, make a plan and go do it. You know, life is too short. Like this isn't a video game where we can hit reset and, and kind of start over. Like we only got one shot at living this life. And so we got to be willing to work really hard and pivot and enjoy it. And, and that's what I'm doing right now. So um, yeah, I'm really excited about the next well, steps. Can we make a master plan for me where I get to be more like Chris Wilson? If, if we, <laughs> yeah, we got to do that, I, I might need some help. <laughs> I might need to, to partake because, uh, Chris, uh, I, I interview a lot of authors on the show. I interview a lot of folks. Uh, honest to God, man, uh, you are the most, if not among the most inspirational of them all. Uh, I thank you so uh, much. Anytime. I mean, and just this entire community that you represent, right? Cause I know when yeah. you're out there, with the master plan and when you're speak, when you're speaking and when even in, even through your art, um, there's not a, there's not really much ego. It's not about Chris. It's about this problem, right? right? It's about all the people behind yes. bars, everyone behind you. And I can't tell you every time that I feel even just a little bit down about myself, I just think, if, let me give you a great example. Uh, I recently came down with COVID. And I have been isolating with a mask inside my own house and I can't play with my daughter really. Right. Or I have to, you know, well, she, she yeah. likes to, you know, we, you know, put her hand in my mouth and like get all goofy. She's a 16 month year old <laughs> kid, you know, and we have a lot of fun goofy around, but I have to keep a little bit of safe distance. And then my wife in particular, uh, we're keeping distance. Right. And in like the three right. or four days in my ha own house where I had to wear a mask and distance myself from my, my wife and daughter, I felt really lonely and sad. And they were right there in front of me. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> Jesus, if I was in prison for like a night yeah. or two nights, three nights, I would go mad. And there are people that stay years away from their wife and kids, their husbands yes. and kids. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not, this is not good at yeah. all this is doing nobody any good yeah. it drives me nuts so anyways the, the 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 those of of you who can keep up the fight man it's it's man more power to you i'm i'm so grateful that we got a chance yeah. to talk and meet man that was our talk with chris wilson prison reform activist and author of the book the master plan one of my favorites if you enjoyed the podcast today please consider rating us on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts those ratings mean a ton to us thanks and we'll be back with a new episode soon